Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin, creator of MediaRoots.org. This is your host, Robbie Martin. So, you know, Prop 19 didn't pass. um, And just increasingly, we're seeing the demonization more of marijuana and psychedelics in general. You know, the 60s, we saw a big psychedelic renaissance. And over the past 40 years, they've been heavily demonized and criticized in our culture. But we're starting to see that change recently. We're starting to see a lot more science pay attention to the benefits of psychedelics and how they relate to human experience. Yeah, there's this organization called MAPS. They've been active for quite a while. More recently, they've been getting a lot more positive attention from the mainstream scientific community. Um, I even heard Dr. Dina Dell mention maps on like a show maybe like two months ago. And just in general, I think the climate is changing enough where now people are more accepting of marijuana, even though Prop 19 didn't pass, uh, which is a shame. Um, I, I do think that, you know, just the taboo is being lifted a lot for marijuana and just psychedelics drugs in general. Yeah, I saw an age breakdown of the people, the voter, the voting age of people who voted for and against Prop 19. And it was really interesting to see people, I think like it was like 40 and over, mostly voted no. And people under 40 voted yes, like overwhelmingly. So it just goes to show you as the older generations die off, you know, we are going to be more accepting of marijuana and psychedelics and just, you know, we're going to take back the culture and reinvent it. There was there was a I mean, it's gone in waves recently, you know, like, you know, mainstream society's interest in in psychedelics. Um, I think today we're we're, going to focus more on psychedelics in general um, because it's it's a very interesting world that I don't think, you know, a lot of people who haven't tried psychedelics might be curious about them. uh, Might want to know the benefits, um, the actual, you know, risks that are involved because there's a lot of disinformation and hysteria surrounding psychedelics. More so, you know, the most illegal drugs. I think it's it's kind of like the fear of the unknown. Um, you know, like mo- there's a lot of hysteria surrounding bad trips, uh, flashbacks. Yeah, brain, um, your brain's melting. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of misinformation and long, you know, debunked pseudoscience research done about LSD and MDMA that show things like that monkeys brains uh, incurred brain damage from MDMA use and that LSD stays has residual amounts of it stay in your spine that research for some reason you know is still parroted by a lot of people even people who ingest psychedelics mm-hmm. you know they'll you know I've heard you know hippie guys say like dude like I got like some bad acid I can feel it <laughs> in my spine it's like tingling like <laughs> So like, I mean, a lot of people, they just don't, they don't, they're not, they aren't really informed on, you know, the research that's been done. Do you Um, think that that could be in part because of the government propaganda from the demonization in the post sixties era, just the government control of psychedelics and, and that whole history, and then just creating a new narrative that just scared the hell out of people? Well, absolutely. In the sixties, I mean, I think a lot more people, you know, before these drugs were illegal, there wasn't as much of a taboo. Mm -hmm. Um, academia was interested in them. There wasn't a taboo back then. Um, Ever since they've been made illegal, the taboo has gotten stronger and stronger since 1970 when LSD was made illegal and the DEA and the war on drugs. There's been even more of a of a taboo. Um, It's gotten exponentially worse throughout our childhoods. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it's, you know, there's been a little bit of a rubber band effect and it's gotten better. But like during the 80s, Dare, you know, things like yeah. dare and the, um, you know, the war on drugs 
movement and the propaganda that went along with it. This is a game that came out, you know, we had, you know, we've played it before. Narc. Narc. Yeah. <laughs> the arcade game made in the 80s. That it has ridiculous. a little DEA logo at the beginning. Basically, that game kind of is a distilled version of the D.A.R.E. Drug propaganda in video game form. You're a narc officer fighting, and basically they're broken down like this the LSD user is a crazy killer clown. Um, <laughs> the PCP addict is a, uh, is a giant, roided out buff person that can throw dumpsters at you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the heroin addict is this guy in a leather jacket with dark sunglasses that throws heroin needles at you, you know? <laughs> And like the dope peddler is just like this guy in a, in a, in a giant overcoat that looks like a, um, a streaker, you know, a guy yeah. that's going to like, a, fl- a guy that's going to flash you <laughs> that was or such something. A ridi- what a great game though. I miss that game. Yeah. Um, and it, I think that game was definitely the people who made it were definitely not taking that, a lot of that stuff seriously. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Talking about dare. Uh, did you hear about that story that came out about the kid who ratted his parents out for having a stash of marijuana at their house oh, yeah. because of what yes. his dare officer told him? Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's already like Orwell where the kids are like spying on their parents and yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, and then, and then the dare officer was asked by the newspaper that reported on it, what, what he thought of what happened. The dare officer said it was a success. <laughs> so. Successful raid. Yeah. Wow. That's ridiculous. Um, so, you know, going back to the scientific research and kind of the reemergence of interest and study on psychedelics and how they relate to human experience and how they can treat several disorders. There were just a bunch of studies done at John Hopkins, Harvard, UCLA, NYU that are testing the potential benefits of psilocybin and how it can treat depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder and alcoholism. And it was just it's just really interesting to read this study. There were double blind experiments with 36 people and mostly all of them described a profound spiritual experience with lasting positive effects. And when they were surveyed, I think another survey was conducted a couple months later and they still felt amazing. They said that they significantly felt better in their life, just general feelings of betterment toward their fellow human beings, I mean, better relationships and better quality of living. Um, and then still 14 months later, they still expressed more satisfaction and described the experience as one of the five most meaningful experiences of their lives. And in interviews, the guy who conducted the experiments described their egos and bodies vanishing as they felt some part of larger state of consciousness in which their personal worries and insecurities vanished. They found themselves reviewing past relationships with lovers and relatives with a new sense of empathy. And the director of MAPS, Rick Doblin, says, quote, in this article from the New York Times that's called Hallucinogens Have Doctors Tuning In, he says, quote, there's this coming together of science and spirituality. Thanks to changes over the last 40 years in the social acceptance of the hospice movement and yoga and meditation, our culture is much more receptive now. And we're showing that these drugs can provide benefits that current treatments can't. And there's other research going on that reports successes in using psilocybin to ease the anxiety of patients with terminal illness, which is going back to just DMT and death therapy and just helping people accept death. Um, This guy, a psychiatrist who's involved in UCLA research in the study, describes it as existential medicine that helps dying people overcome the fear, panic and depression. And he says that under the influence of hallucinogens, individuals transcend their primary identification with their bodies and experience ego-free states before the time of their actual physical demise and return with a new perspective and profound acceptance of the life constant, which is change. So, yeah, it's just 
it's just amazing the benefits and the potential capabilities that psychedelics have with people accepting death, facing their ego, and just really overcoming fear. Yeah, and the and the DEA's classification when they schedule a drug, LSD is schedule one. That means that it has zero medical value in the DEA's definition of what a schedule is. So in the DEA's eyes and the federal government's eyes, most of these hallucinogens have zero medical value, mm -hmm. which is pretty absurd if you really think about how powerful these drugs are. Um, you know, today we should we should dispel a lot of the myths about psychedelics, but we should also, you know, give people a little bit of a roadmap um, if they want to do some experimenting themselves on, you know, what what these drugs are, um, what the different classifications of psychedelics are, mm -hmm. the resources history. to learn more. Yeah. Um, and just, I think we should do a quick little breakdown. When we're talking about psychedelic drugs, we're also talking about drugs that have hallucinogenic properties or drugs that have, you know, mind opening properties. There's, there's different kinds of hallucinogens. Most of the ones people are familiar with are drugs like LSD and psilocybin, um, which is also known as mushrooms. Those drugs are under the classification called tryptamine. Uh, those are the most common psychedelics. And there's the other most common form of psychedelics um, called phenethylamine. They include drugs like mescaline, MDMA, 2CT7, 2CI, 2CB. And then, and then we have other drugs like disassociatives, which include ketamine, PCP, nitrous oxide. And then there's, a, there's another category of, of psychedelics that's usually not called psychedelic. They call them deliriants, which are like the more dangerous, unpredictable um, hallucinogens like Datura, uh, you know, people taking Dramamine. Uh, you know, otherwise known as nightshade or angel's trumpets. Angel trumpet, those flowers? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, and thank you for breaking down those classifications, but we wanted to bring people through a roadmap of time from the emergence of psychedelics in our culture um, and how it evolved now. I mean, the CIA takeover, the demonization, and, and where we are today with kind of the uh, more accepting perspective on psychedelic drugs and how they can benefit humanity. Yeah, so, I think a good place to start would be around 1938. Albert Hoffman, who a lot of you have probably heard of, uh, he's the inventor slash discoverer of LSD. He was working for a company called Sandoz Laboratories. In 1938, he was working on a medicinal use of the ergot fungus, mm -hmm. which was a lot of people, you know, rumored to have been involved in the Salem witch trials, which made them hallucinate about, um, you know, devils and stuff. Out of this this laboratory process, he came up with LSD um, in, in November 16th, 1938. Without knowing what it was. Without knowing what it was. And I guess he didn't think it was active. The main intention of him synthesizing this was to obtain a respiratory and circulatory stimulant. Wow. It was set aside for five years. And then on April 19th, 1943, he was re-examining it. And he didn't realize how powerful this chemical was. And he accidentally spilled some on his fingers. Mm. Um, since LSD is, is active at a 20 microgram dosage range, and it's also absorbable through the skin, only it absorbable at very, very high dosages. All those fears about hippies covering doorknobs with acid back in the 60s is totally, you know, illogical. You wouldn't, you know, it, the LSD, you'd have to, it would have to have been poured on like a second before. Right. So he was accidentally absorbed it through his fingertips and 
he started to experience a very weird, lightheaded, dizzy feeling. He had no idea what was happening to him. And uh, he rode his bike home. And on the way home, he basically had the world's first LSD trip. He experienced colors, kaleidoscopic Mm -hmm. refractions of the environment he was seeing around him. And then after the famous bike ride, that he went home and then he had an ego loss experience where the the idea of himself dissolved and he saw himself from up above his body on mm-hmm. the bed. And that's when he realized that he had discovered he was onto something. <laughs> he had discovered something extremely powerful. Right. And what about people like Gordon Wasson and Richard Schultz? Um, well, Richard Schultz was involved with Albert Hoffman during Albert Hoffman's follow-up research into other drugs that resembled LSD. After his his work with Sandoz Laboratory, Hoffman started to be interested in rumors of other hallucinogens um, in different areas of the world. He and his wife and Richard Schultz traveled to Mexico and South America, and there they discovered, they rediscovered to, to the West, it had already been used for thousands of years by, you know, the indigenous tribes, um, psilocybin, the active ingredient mm-hmm. in magic mushrooms. Um, he also discovered... Uh, the active ingredient in Morning Glory, which is LSA, which was chemically very chemically similar to LSD. Um, LSA in the form of Morning Glory seeds was used by indigenous tribes for mm-hmm. ritualistic purposes. He was also the first person to introduce the West to salvia. So they wrote a book that I actually think is a great resource for it's an encyclopedia illustrated guide to every indigenous plant that was known at the time, um, cataloged in alphabetical order mm-hmm. and the effects that it has and the known scientific active ingredients that it has. The book is called Plants of the Gods. It was published in 1979. Um, the authors are Richard Schultz and Albert Hoffman. And Wasson um, was another guy who was doing research on indigenous use of psychedelics. He's most famous for his work with Albert Hoffman on the Ulysian Mysteries. Before LSD went mainstream in the 60s culture and exploded in popularity with with the hippie movement and all of that, um, it was really popular among academic researchers like Timothy Leary, um, Ram Dass, and they were, it was being studied and it was... uh, It was being... Try, you know, experimented yeah. with among academics all over the United States. Um, and, and people like Timothy Leary, uh, while he was at Harvard in the early 60s, him and, and uh, Richard Alpert would give out LSD to students and mm-hmm. other professors at Harvard at these private parties that he would have. And back then, LSD was so cheap and so easy to obtain since it was legal that people would just give it away, you know, and that later led to things like Ken Kesey's electric Kool-Aid acid test. Yeah. I mean, he, his bus tour was basically just like a free LSD party, you know, traveling extravaganza. Yeah. LSD. And, and unfortunately there also was, you know, backlash at large with society, but there was a backlash within just the psychedelic community in and of itself. You know, today, a lot of people kind of, they look down on people like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass for- Did they see it as like just making LSD kind of like a frivolous activity and taking away the seriousness of it? Or what, what was the backlash necessarily against people like Timothy Leary? And I think that's part of it. I think taking away the seriousness of it was the main part of it, but in the sense that they thought that it was a very, such a powerful substance mm-hmm. that we should do more research on it. Did Timothy Leary like basically invent the term dropping acid because of his, the turn on, tune in and drop out? 
probably, that slogan? Probably. I mean, all the the one the one slogan, my favorite slogan of Timothy Leary is saying that you should never dose somebody with LSD without their knowledge. Because um, after he kind of pioneered this, you know, this acid party movement, people were thinking it would be really funny to just dose people without telling them, including the CIA. Yeah, <laughs> especially the CIA. <laughs> especially the CIA. I even heard Alexander Shulgin say once kind of in a scornful way, oh, they're, he's pulling a Timothy Leary, pulling a Leary. And I think he was talking about the fact that Timothy Leary just didn't want to keep it hush hush and on the down low. He just didn't care yeah. and wanted it to spread as many people as he could, you know, and whatever means he could. And that angered a lot of people who wanted it to stay legal because I think a lot of people kind of predicted its eventual illegality. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, after the hippies were dropping acid and everyone was just, you know, free love and, and take psychedelics. Um, the government made it illegal and and just completely demonized the drug. Um, there was no public debate. It was just that acid was then, you know, illegal, made illegal. Yeah. And acid was among the most popular psychedelic use at the time. Uh, psilocybin caught on around the same time, but it wasn't as widely available. Um, Nowadays, it's easier to find mushrooms and psilocybin on the street than it is LSD. Um, We forgot to mention Aldous Huxley. In 1954, Aldous Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception, which was a a collection of essays about his experiences with mescaline. And the book became extremely popular. And I think it was kind of a primer for the culture, the Western culture, to when Albert Hoffman and Schultz and Wasson Mm -hmm. all hit the scene and Leary. It was kind of like people had already, you know, heard about it through the grapevine, Mm -hmm. you know, and literary people were, you know, respected Huxley. He wrote one of the most famous sci-fi books of the era, Brave Mm -hmm. New World. Yeah. So they're ready to embrace an experiment with the whole free love movement. The government wanted to just demonize the Vietnam era and they wanted to acid was a perfect way to do it. And just to say all these people are just hippies, they're all tripping. Um, it was just a perfect demonization of that generation and of that time. And then you see, of course, the last 40 years, just completely culture clash. It seemed like we have this post sixties era of like family values and really conservative ideology happening in our culture. It's just interesting the way that that happened. And, and during this time, of course, you know, psychedelics were made illegal and there was really no more public debate about it. Yeah, there was a definite strong momentum building against the Vietnam War that was completely intertwined with, you know, psychedelic use and anti-establishment mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, Psychedelics, in a sense, they deprogram your cultural operating system, Mm -hmm. as Terrence McKenna calls it. So back in the 60s, you know, a lot of these hippies, they dressed the same, you know, they were they, in a lot of ways there was a, there was a definite herd mentality behind it, but a lot most of them were very anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people try to paint them as they were all commies and they all got influenced by Che Guevara and stuff, but that's not true. That a lot of those people poisoned the well. Most of them were just people who his mind had been opened through the use of psychedelics. And the government knew that if they kept psychedelics legal, that dissent and that momentum would continue to build. The Vietnam War was over. Psychedelic drugs were made illegal. They were demonized um, into the 70s. And it was kind of a way to just put that whole era under the rug, just push it under the rug and just move on to the next chapter. It was just like, instead of talking about how this generation really ended a war and really got out there and did direct action. And you see like the, just the sixties movement in Berkeley living here and going to the Berkeley campus and knowing that they crop dusted tear gas on the students and really just that culture war that was happening. It's just so easy to just be like, Oh, well they were all just hippies. 
and then that's it. It's just like such a yeah, or to try gross, to gross, you know, misrepresentation of the time. what you said though about psychedelics deprogram you i mean psychedelics show you something that society doesn't tell us right now we've totally lost our connection with with what it means to be human and psychedelics really put that into perspective and they you know they really make you face your ego so why the hell would the establishment want you to face your ego and realize that you are living in a consumer culture where we've lost touch of of just intrinsic human essence because of psychedelics unpredictability, I think was another reason why the government saw no need for them. You know, we're about to get in the history of psychedelics and, and the CIA and the CIA experimenting with different psychedelics in terms of psychological warfare. But I really think that that was another reason why they, they didn't want to use psychedelics anymore. They just saw they're completely unpredictable. They could cause some people to be terrified. Some people to wake up. Some people can't handle facing their ego. And we'll get into a couple of stories where, specific examples of how the CIA was testing and realized that they ultimately had no use for psychedelics in terms of, of psyops and mind control. Or so they say. Or they, so they, they say, yeah. I mean, they, they don't publicly do any more LSD research or psychedelic research, but who knows what yeah. psychedelics the government has pioneered. When you were saying, that when you started out talking about, you know, the psychological warfare aspect of it, no one would understand LSD probably better, the people who had done the most research on it, you know, ethical or unethical, was the U.S. government. Yeah. So when they made it illegal, they knew very well that its potential to control the masses was not valuable, mm -hmm. that it's not going to help them, if anything, to derail it. I think the first known case that we have of the CIA experimenting with psychedelics um, on an unassuming population was in France in 1951. There was an outbreak of hallucinations panic attacks, psychotic episodes, sweeping through this town, hospitalizing dozens of people. 
And what they concluded at the time that the bread in the town was contaminated with ergot, the toxic fungus that grows on rye that you said LSD is derived from. Um, but according to investigative journalist Hank Alberelli, the CIA had actually dosed the bread with LSD. It just goes to show you that they were doing this all over the place. So we're going to go in now to the CIA control and experimentation with psychedelics. The CIA kind of were, were the pioneers of psychedelic experimentation within their own unit. And it's really, really interesting story. It started in the 50s, uh, the early 50s. The CIA approached a man named Nick Bursell. He was a psychiatrist in L.A. who was one of the first psychiatrists and um, doctors who were working with LSD at the time. You know, it was during the communism era. It was the Red Scare. The CIA approached this guy and they were like, hey, you know, we want to find out what LSD can do, if it, what the Russians can do with LSD if they get their hands on it. Could they dose the water supply? What would that do? Um, and then when they realized later that, that that was pretty far-fetched, they still were concerned. Supposedly, this is according to documents, CIA documents, they were concerned about if the Russians could dose like a, a battleship water supply or a bunker or something like that. That's probably the least nefarious of their purposes, the reasons why they were investigating LSD. The, the CIA and the government was always looking for the perfect truth serum. Having a, a, a LSD as a truth serum was something that they've thought of as a possibility for many years, almost a decade or more. You know, they did terrible things like the things, you, you know, some of the things you're going to talk about involving, you know, involuntary research subjects, you know, right. people who were dosed with LSD without their knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Um, one interesting fact really quick before we move on about Nick Bursell, the, the psychiatrist that I talked about earlier, have you seen those photos of different insects that are dosed with LSD and, and how they react? Um, there's an interesting experiment that he did with spiders and he saw that when spiders were on LSD, they would, um, spin perfectly symmetrical webs. I don't know if everyone <laughs> should check out those photos. They're really interesting. Yeah. I think I remember seeing those photos in like health class. <laughs> really? Yeah. When I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so and we're going to, we're going to get into MK ultra now. It was a really bizarre and really crazy operation that the CIA had going on involving psychedelics and LSD in, in the early fifties, which is just really interesting that they were doing this before, you know, any, before oh, yeah. the culture really emerged at yeah, all. Before the hippie movement, it, it would take, you know, at least 10 years before the hippie movement started to adopt LSD and it spread among the, that culture. So keep in mind how, how new this was and how programmed CIA agents are and how they were the ones that were dosing each other. So the CIA, they, they had this program called MK Ultra, and part of it, they had a doctor called Evan Cameron tested LSD unwittingly on 53 subjects. Um, they had no knowledge that they were going to get dosed. Not only did he dose them with LSD, but he also gave them electroshock therapy. Uh, and attempting to just control their mind and experiment with mind control. Uh, it was really, really horrible. They use these human beings as guinea pigs to do this. And still, people have not recovered from the trauma. There's still nine people who are suing the U.S. government and saying that they are their lives are ruined from this experiment. And uh, we should talk a little bit about Sandoz Laboratories and all this, because they, they played an instrumental role after, you know, Albert Hoffman invented LSD uh, for them. They actually supplied to the L, uh, to the CIA uh, over ten kilograms of LSD, which is over a hundred million doses. Yeah, of the LSD. CIA bought bought a um, hundred million doses, which was rumored to be half the world's supply at the time. Yeah, of LSD. I mean, they were the biggest customers. Um, 
And uh, and at the time, I mean, how much really was that compared to now? I mean, if you get a hit of LSD now, what? Yeah, I think when they say doses back then, a dose of LSD was around 200 micrograms, which compared to today's hits of LSD is very strong. You know, today's hit of LSD contains anywhere from 30 micrograms to, you know, maybe even less than that, 20 micrograms to 75 micrograms. So it'd be, you know you know, 400 million doses by today's standards that the CIA was buying. Right. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention that uh, from earlier, we were talking about Point Saint Esprit, the the uh, town in France that was dosed with LSD in their bread. Sandoz Laboratories helped the CIA cook up a propaganda whitewash story um, to counteract the truth of what happened in that during that event, they helped the CIA concoct a story saying that the LS that the bread supply there was actually contaminated with ergot fungus, mm-hmm. which is funny because that's almost really what happened because ergot fungus <laughs> is, has a precursor to LSD in right. it. Uh, so I guess Sandoz Laboratories at the time wanted to protect their product, which was their flagship product was LSD. You know? Right. Moving on with Sandoz uh, Laboratory in 1953, the FDA actually took over the just the supervisory role of um, administering LSD in investigations. So it's just really interesting that the Food and Drug Administration was dealing directly with Sandoz Laboratory when it came to LSD. Imagine the FDA approving, um, you know, for for use uh, LSD, you know, in the marketplace of, in any way, shape or form. Back then they were directly... Uh, they had a relationship. They were the conduit between the CIA and Sandoz Laboratories. It's just weird. When I think of the, the FDA, I think of a very out-in-the-open establishment or component of the U.S. government. It just, But when you think of the CIA, you think of a very nefarious, secretive group that you know has a black budget. We don't really know what's going on. It's just, it, it is just interesting that the FDA took on this role just in a public Yeah, it's arena. definitely an unprecedented um, relationship. That I think was actually something that had never really happened before, especially of a drug, you know, something that was like that new and cutting edge and, and, you know, controversial, to say the least. So the director of the MK Ultra program was a guy named Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, um, who approved a plan to just start dosing Americans against their will or against their knowledge. He saw the importance of using LSD as a covert operation, um, forms of covert operations. He publicly talked about dosing public officials and foreign diplomats. He would travel around and he would just say that he had LSD with him at all times. And he would just say that that's what he wanted to do. Um, (laughs) And we already know that the CIA wanted to dose Fidel Castro to publicly humiliate him just because of its, you know, unpredictable, unpredictability. Yeah, there's a scene in the movie JFK where Joe Pesci is, is saying, we're going to we're going to poison Castro. We're going to make him look like his beard fall out, make him look really stupid. So like <laughs> this, that's actually based on a real thing that the CIA wanted to poison him with thalidomide and get, and make his beard fall out. And then it went to now I want to dose him with LSD and make him lose credibility, you know, make him do crazy things in front of his <laughs> followers. And then it evolved into now we just want to assassinate yeah, him. Yeah, now let's just take him out. Yeah, that's when Operation yeah. Northwoods was put on the table. Yeah. Operation Northwoods is a very interesting one. Uh, that was a crazy time. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> um, and yeah, MK Ultra is just a really interesting case. Uh, initially, it just started, there was a unit within the CIA called the TSS, um, and they were the ones who were heading the mind control MK Ultra experiments. And it started off where they were just dosing each other. They just 
warned each other in, in, in the agency. They were just like, look, we're just going to start dosing each other and you're not going to know you might get dosed at any time, any day. <laughs> so it was like an occupational hazard of the CIA around that time to just get dosed. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. And think of how like. <laughs> How insane that is because these, I mean, CIA agent in the early fifties, how programmed are you? And to just be like dosed unexpectedly with, with LSD, like a really strong dose of LSD just seems really intense. Yeah. I just keep thinking of the time period that this was in, you know, anywhere from, you know, between 1953 all the way on to 1960, these guys were so, you know, so, you know, generic, good old, good old boy Americans. American dream. And, and to just get. Um, these, and they would, they would give him extremely high doses of LSD to the point where they would have like identity loss. Oh yeah. And imagine having an experience like that without being given the proper tools to be able to process what you've been experiencing without knowing what mm-hmm. you've been given. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, talk about a bad trip. Can you imagine tripping in the CIA, just getting dosed when you're like, just working? Yeah. With government. hanging out with your coworkers, like a bunch of old white dudes, like. It's like, oh my God, that's talking about killing people in the third world. It's just like a end, like a end goal to your just like nefarious scheme. And then you're like, wait, I'm tripping, losing my ego, realizing that I'm connected to these people. Ah! I I remember when I was a kid, I, I saw an Unsolved Mysteries episode about a CIA agent who was they thought he was given LSD and then he later like committed suicide or something. Oh yeah, you, no, that were you that, telling me about that? Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. I mean, and so it started off within the TSS and then it just spread throughout the CIA. I mean, everyone was fair game at a certain point. This guy was just out of his mind, Dr. Gottlieb. He just would start <laughs> dosing people and it was just like this big joke. They would just be like, "Oh, haha." And so what he did, he took a bunch of CIA agents who had never tripped before and it was completely um against their will he just dosed all their champagne after dinner in the woods i mean he took these people in the woods in the middle of you know some spot that they didn't even know where they were probably and one of the guys became extremely introverted extremely depressed and ended up killing himself because of it this was uh what was his name dr frank olson is the guy and yeah it just it just seems it's it's unethical to say the least, you know, to give to give someone a high dose of psychedelics without their knowledge, and then, God, it's just I can't even imagine. It's so bizarre. I just remembered uh, hearing about a long time ago that the Unabomber was actually uh, a person who was experimented with during MK Ultra. Oh wow! That he. It wasn't that he he never admitted or or talked about it. I don't think, but people after doing some research on him after they figured out who he was, they actually found out that he was one of the participants. So oh if you actually God. read some of his writings, they're pretty they're insane, but they're actually like extremely intelligently written. These weird um, dystopian sci fi diatribes. You yeah, know. you're like they're actually founded in some truth. He did get yeah, I mean, <laughs> electroshock a- therapy by the government and like yeah. forced to take LSD. So if if they were trying to have a Manchurian candidate, you know, I guess that might have been a semi success. But yeah, again, it cho- it shows the unpredictability of of mm-hmm. you know trying to control people with psychedelic drugs. Yeah, absolutely. And MK Ultra eventually expanded for the next ten years almost into this thing called the Safe House experiments, where different CIA agents would rent out hotel rooms or safe houses and they'd just hire prostitutes to lure men back to the room where they would unknowingly dose these men with LSD and then the CIA agent would proceed to sit behind a two-way mirror and just like watch for days. 
Just watch them like have sex with prostitutes and just see how they reacted on acid. Yeah. It's really (laughs) weird. (laughs) Really weird. Yeah. Just really, really interesting. And then they called this other operation Operation Midnight Climax, where, yeah, I mean, that that was another name for it, where the drug addicted prostitutes would just bring men back and the CIA agents would just be there watching and taking notes, I guess. Speaking of operations, a lot of this this talk of these type of CIA experiments, like Dr. Gottlieb, they remind me of um, not like Nazi experiments, like oh, yeah. just weird. I mean, like, um, like the operation paperclip. I wonder if some of these scientists were mentored by people from operation paperclip, mm-hmm. the Nazi scientists. It does sound were, very similar to that. Yeah. it creeps me out. Just really just blatant violations of human rights. I mean, you're, you're messing with someone's whole identity, you know, and just everything they know is true. It's just really seems really extreme to just be messing around with and, dosing a bunch of people thinking that it's funny i'm sure they had their own you know hidden agenda as well <laughs> yeah sure a lot of hidden agendas and just to, just to um sidetrack for a second about i remember reading um that the cia was also very interested in pcp and and the effects that that could have on the populace uh because unlike lsd pcp could be inhaled uh, in gaseous form mm-hmm. so they were actually designing these these droppable um gas canisters that would explode and make like pcp tear gas bombs except Where? a lot more concentrated um they didn't ever use them anywhere oh, okay. but they tried to sell the technology to england and england refused to use them because it, it it's just not effective for real crowd control. It's unpredictable. The wind, it's just like trying to drop like a chemical weapon. That's why the yeah. chemical weapons aren't used very much in warfare, but this is different in the fact that you might kill some of the people that you're trying to just tranquilize and some people might not get affected at all. But during this whole process, when they were making these PCP bombs, they also came up with a new chemical, um, I think a, a contract that was a con a company that was contracted out by the military developed a chemical called BZ, which was a much more powerful version of what they were looking for, which was like a tranquilizer mm. in gas form, except BZ was based off of like the chemical in Datura. It was an anti-chlorinogenic. Oh it actually made you have delirium where you would like have the type of hallucinations like you're having like a fever. Yeah. You know, like a 104 degree fever. And the movie Jacob's Ladder is, you know, loosely based on kind of like a fictional account of a Vietnam platoon being dosed with BZ. Yeah. Well, perfect example is Agent Orange of, I mean, look how many people are still suffering from Agent Orange that are Vietnam vets. Yeah. I, I mean... mean we destroyed everyone that was there. It wasn't just the Vietnamese. I mean, we, all, all the land and all of our soldiers too. It's just, it's crazy. And now Monsanto's making our food. Thanks, Monsanto. Oh yeah. And, and Russia, uh, the only time that, that a weapon of that, that I know of has been used before is during like the Chechnyan takeover of that theater in Russia, yeah. like 10 or 15 years ago, they, they dropped like an opioid bomb smoke bomb that was a phenytyl gas and what ended up happening is half of the hostages died because they just gassed the whole theater some of the terrorists or whatever died but Jesus. it was totally i mean it was it was not effective because it killed like mm-hmm. half of the people that were just trying to tranquilize yeah sorry i sidetracked you go back to no i mean saying. i mean that's it i mean pretty much after after they realized the unpredictability of lsd and they realized that they couldn't really effectively use it for mind control necessarily. I mean, who knows what they've been doing since they do have half the world's acid still somewhere. So, I mean, who knows what they're doing with it or, or what they've been doing, but 
at the time they definitely demonized it and kind of the research kind of ended there around the mid 60s. Alexander Shulgin is is an interesting character, you know, in our story because he is someone who not only was involved in some of the government experiments with psychedelics, but he was also involved in part of the hippie culture as well. He kind of bridged the gap between mm-hmm. the two in a strange way. Um he goes by the name Sasha. So most people call him Sasha Shulgin. He wrote two of the most important books that are pretty much considered like the Bible of modern psychedelics. One of them is TCAL and the other is PCAL. Um, tryptamines I had known and loved and phenethylamines I had known and loved. And basically the books are recipes for hundreds of new drugs that he invented all in his own lab uh, behind his house. Mm-hmm. Um he actually lives in, you know, not too far away from where yeah, we're doing this broadcast right you've now. You've been to 15. his lab. Yeah, when I a long time ago, I had the the, you know, I was fortunate enough to be friends with um, a guy named Mike Crowley, uh, who happened to be friends with Shulgin, and Shulgin is such a nice fellow that he actually lets people come to his house for you know certain events that you know that know people that he knows. So it's mm-hmm. like. You know, it's not like a necessarily a, a, a totally private closed event. He's very open about letting new people come, which is which is really cool. And yeah, he, he just he gave me like a really quick tour of his lab. He had. So what did he make? He um, well, basically, he, he's most famous for discovering the properties of MDMA. And what, what he made was hundreds of analogs analogs is a name for slight variations on previously existing drugs Mm -hmm. that might have completely new effects or might have very similar effects to the drugs that they're based off of is that where we hear like 2cb 2c absolutely he invented 2cb yeah oh wow yeah he invented 2ci 2ct7 2ct6 um, 2CT2. I mean, all those, all those drugs, he, he examined drugs like mescaline, MDMA. Um, yeah, he invented a lot of drugs. We'll, we'll link to a list of basically a list of all of the drugs he invented, um, on here. Yeah. Be sure to check out our SoundCloud timeline as you follow this broadcast. If you want to see where any of this, uh, research is coming from, check that out or the music. Yeah, so so a little bit of a quick history about MDMA. Um, we talked about LSD a lot, but the you know a lot of MDMA is is a psychedelic, but not in the same sense as LSD. It's more of a mental, emotional uh, psychedelic that they used to use in in therapy with with couples and had great success, right? Yeah, it, it was actually invented in 1912 by Merck, which is one of the most famous chemical companies um, that they, they write the Merck index, which mm-hmm. is like the end, you know, it's like the end all um, reference book for all the chemicals that I think, you know, that exist right now. In 1967, Shulgin discovered the psychoactive properties of MDMA. When he worked for the DEA, right? Yeah, he was working for the DEA and it, and it it coincided with him. He was also doing research on nutmeg, the psychoactive properties of nutmeg. Nutmeg is a hallucinogen. The active ingredient in it is sassafras oils and and MDMA um, is made from that as a precursor. Don't try this at home. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, the DEA had Shulgin doing research for him. Shulgin was doing research in their laboratories. Mm. Um, He was doing research from home in his own laboratory on their dime. He did, you know, you can look at all his papers. He did all this research on nutmeg, but then he started doing research on research on MDMA. And then he actually, 
the most interesting part about this is he wrote the handbook that the DEA still uses today. <laughs> it's the it's the DEA um, reference manual. He went off in the in the you know in the eighties. He started designing all these new drugs. He started using people in his own peer group to experiment with them and write kind of like anecdotal mm-hmm. stories about their experiences taking different dosages of these drugs. You know, kind of unscientific, but also, you know, he couldn't get funding for, to do this. The DEA wasn't going after him for any of it. And he actually wrote the book under a fake name mm-hmm. just in case something happened to him. Uh, and something did end up happening to him because later in the eighties and in the early nineties, he was one of the first people to actually try to test MDMA to make sure it didn't have adulter adulterants in it. So he would basically open his lab up and offer people to send him MDMA and then he would test it for free. Yeah. He was doing, he was doing a public service kind of like in the same way that, you know, you can disagree with the moral reasons or whatever for like people like needle exchanges and stuff, Mm -hmm. but he's trying to, you know, let people, do drugs safely. Um, unlike the DEA who just gives out completely complete misinformation about MDMA saying that it causes brain damage and, mm-hmm. and that research has been long debunked. So while he was doing this public service, uh, the DEA caught wind of it and in their eyes, he was in possession of illegal drugs because mm-hmm. he was being sent MDMA. Um, even though he, and he was a chemist, you know, doing research and whatnot. So they raided him. Um, and this was after he published uh, his first book. And a uh, DEA agent brought his book to be signed during yeah, this the raid. Yeah, this is rumored within the psychedelic community that he's actually still very well respected within the DEA. And then, yeah, a guy brought um, brought one of his books and asked uh, Shulgin to sign it. And then kind of another sad story that you don't hear about much from that raid is it takes peyote a very long time to grow. And they had a really old peyote plant and the DEA just destroyed it. They just knocked it over. Just to be assholes, like they didn't even have to. Ugh. And Shulgin got fined, I think it was around $40,000. Oh. He didn't face any prison time, but he got his license taken away to work, do any work. I think this whole time he had some sort of clearance to do work with chemicals. Like that's mm-hmm. why he was able to buy chemicals from companies. Mm-hmm. Like if you're just an average Joe off the street, you can't call up. And get, make on the MDMA. internet. <laughs> yeah, you can actually go on the internet and search for you know the chemical name for PCP, and you'll see it come up on all these chemical supply warehouses. But you have to have like a special class license to be able to operate, mm-hmm. it, and that's what he had. It's like the guy from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I really want to meet Alexander Shulgin. Oh, and an interesting thing by the DEA's San Francisco field office. They had a statement on record that said, it is our opinion that those books are pretty much cookbooks on how to make illegal drugs. Agents tell me that in clandestine labs that they have raided, they have found copies of those books. Now, this this statement was made right after Shulgin's raid. Now, this suggests that it wasn't really the MDMA testing that angered them. It was the fact that on their dime and with their help and their influences, he helped come up with hundreds of new drugs and just gave out the recipes for free. Now, can you imagine a pharmaceutical company today inventing a hundred <laughs> new drugs based on these crazy... That actually helped expand your consciousness and yeah, didn't destroy you? and just saying, here you. you guys, here's an open source document on how to make them. This right. is what you do. I mean, that's incredible. That is incredible. Nobody would do that today. And there's nobody really... If people are following in his footsteps, they're doing it very much in secret because mm-hmm. of what's happened to him. So we've been talking about MDMA and... We were talking also about how scientists really pioneered the psychedelic 
movement in the sixties and, um, MDMA and was actually, CIA, not yeah, just scientists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, CIA, yeah, the CIA used scientists to, to help them with experiments, but MDMA was widely used, um, within psychology and therapy in the eighties. <clears throat> it wasn't banned until 1985. And before that, it was really prevalent in gay clubs. You'd see MDMA in vending machines and yeah, it was used in couples therapy and it really, it had widespread success. Oh, yeah. And then after MDMA uh, became illegal, it was scheduled as a class one, mm-hmm. even well, after it's already been shown to have so much benefits. Yeah. I remember reading that over 1000 therapists in the United States were using um, MDMA for psychotherapy successfully. Mm-hmm. And it was not shunned within the psychology um, field. There were some psychologists that were that were split on it. I mean, of course, there was people, you know, who thought it was like, you know, there was even an SF Chronicle article talking about this movement in psychology in the early 80s. And the and in the article, they used the phrase is MDMA the yuppie psychedelic. So it had this kind of connotation that it was some sort of like fun, you know, trip out thing right. like for yuppies to do. I but mean, it actually has it. It does have some great properties to it. I think, and personally, I find MDMA to be one of the more taxing mentally mm-hmm. psychedelics that I've done. Because it depletes your serotonin, and sometimes that can really mess with people. Yeah, and plus, one of the one of the things, the problems I have with with ecstasy, and I say ecstasy, and instead of MDMA, I mean ecstasy as you buy it on the black market is most of the time not actually MDMA or it has some other kind of amphetamine mm-hmm. or it's or yeah, not, not even MDMA. MDMA. Yeah. So speed and you never know what you're getting. And that's the problem. I mean, you really have to have like a drug testing kit or something if you want to do MDMA safely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and if anyone still believes in the drug war and thinks that the reason why certain drugs are legal and certain aren't, is somehow justified by the by the federal government. I mean, just look at that new study that just came out. I mean, this is clear, but it's just funny that it's just being admitted that alcohol is the most dangerous drug, followed by crack and heroin. I mean, there's no it's just it's just amazing. Alcohol is so prevalent and it just helps to maintain the status quo. It helps to maintain our just like animalism and it does. It helps to maintain that kind of bread and circuses um you know, outlet that we need to have in our society. Terrence McKenna writes a great deal about this in Food of the Gods, which is Mm -hmm. a really good book that that we highly recommend. If you want to read about kind of the history of the drug war, the hit when we're talking about the drug war, the drug war goes back so far, you know, even further than the opium war. It goes back even as far as sugar being imported into the West, the Western world. You know, sugar was a, a, a wild exotic commodity before Napoleon's introduction, um, you know, to the, to the rest of the colonies, cane sugar and, you know, sugar as an actual substance, we became very quickly addicted to, you know, over the course of the next 50, 60 years. Yeah. Because when, as we evolved as human beings, we didn't have a supply of sugar around us at all times, but our body naturally craves sugar and fat. So when you have those accessible at all times, you're going to get addicted to it because it's just a constant instant gratification. Your brain is wanting that. It craves it. And now we see sugar added to every food product. Seriously, if you just look at the back of anything, there's sugar added to bread. Yeah, and we, we think of that as very normal, and, and it has been part of most Western cultures, society since, you know, since the dawn of the United States. 
you know, other, if you think about other drugs and why they're legal, why they're still legal, you know, you think, well, why is tobacco still legal? Mm -hmm. That that's so dangerous for you and so bad, but it has a very important historical significance. We've become addicted to sugar, tobacco and caffeine and alcohol kind of all simultaneously as a culture. And all of those kind of feed into that status quo Mm -hmm. of our culture. Alcohol fuels the, the mating ritual, you know, people who are on the prowl, you know, looking for mates, basically alcohol completely fuels most of that. Maintains sexism in our society. It maintains that, you know, the male alpha male dominance over the female Mm -hmm. Um, abuse. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying alcohol is the cause of that, but it helps lubricate. Definitely helps facilitate it. That that bad human element. I know that I'm alcohol is the only drug that I have ever taken that I feel like a completely different person that I could do, like be aggressive, you know, really aggressive on it. And if I feel that way, certain people definitely use it as an, as an outlet, like, like it's almost like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Mr. Hyde. Yeah, absolutely. And, and think of like, think of the idea or the phrase a cigarette break or a coffee break mm-hmm. and, and kind of apply that to the industrial revolution when all these giant factories are opening up and people are doing these long shifts of manual labor, you know, labor where they weren't really manufacturing a whole thing. So they, they weren't really using too much of their intelligence. They weren't. Yeah. Like, like a, before you, you were a blacksmith, you, yeah. you manufactured a whole like, you know, piece of something in the industrial revolution you're were, you're were manufacturing a tiny component for something in an assembly line so it was this monotonous repetitive activity you needed something to look forward to yeah and caffeine um tea and coffee it was a perfect way to motivate people and to keep people focused on that repetitive action yeah we're perfect worker bees and that's why caffeine is the perfect drug to be addicted to and Especially in America, when people are so overworked, you know, working 60 hour weeks. And yeah, I mean, you need that. And think about this, too. I mean, you're so dehumanized. You're you're not really using too much intelligence or critical thinking in your in your monotonous daily life. If you're producing in a factory or whatnot and you just get around the coffee, coffee um, machine and talk to people. And it's just like a it's a societal like cultural pull. And you feel like you can relate to people and then you go outside and share a cigarette with someone. And that's what like, keeps you going throughout the day. Yeah. And all, all industrial productive you know, societies, if you think about it, have their own stimulant ritual. Um, in South America, it's cocoa. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the East, um, you know, in, in Asian countries, it's tea, you know, caffeinated tea, herbal tea. In India, it's chai mm-hmm. uh, out here. Or, and actually in India, it's betel nut, too. Whoa. Um, that's a, that's another stimulant that's used in a lot of cultures in, uh, in the Eurasia it's cut, uh, you know, that's a stimulant in Saudi Arabia. That's still used a lot there. Cultures mm-hmm. that don't use alcohol, you know, replace it with other drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has like a ceremonial drug and everyone yeah, has and a ceremonial, like, like alcohol. Yeah. And, 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 and these drugs are, are ceremonial in the sense that they, they kind of bring people around the concept of having this focused, productive mindset, mm-hmm. you know, to get the work done and go home. can't think of any other country that extends that to the extreme than this one. Yeah, and cigarettes play such a large component in factory work and manual labor, um, you know, workers too. I mean, look at 
Asian countries. I mean, the ratio of people who smoke there is so much higher, like in China and mm-hmm. Japan. Absolutely. Um, I mean, people there are ridiculous smokers. Yeah. I remember when I went to Japan, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere. I mean, they still had smoking indoors when I was over there. Yeah. I don't know if it's still like that now, but. Another interesting fact about the origin of the cigarette, especially for women, was Ed Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, um, introduced smoking to women. It used to be kind of taboo for women to be smokers. It was like a manly thing. And he propagandized it, did this whole campaign, how smoking a cigarette was a woman's freedom and she has the freedom to smoke. And it was like called a freedom stick at the time. And that's what got women into smoking. Yeah. And he, and he tried to use the symbolism, the way he popularized that, the idea of like the freedom stick is he said, like when you smoke a cigarette and you're a woman, it's like female, you know, Liberty holding her torch of freedom. Oh my God. So it was like, you know, you you symbolize, you know, the rise up against the man, you know, manly oppression. I'm just picturing an old school ad from the fifties of like the statue of Liberty, just her arm is a cigarette. (laughs) She's like holding it up. Oh, I'm sure that's, there's some anti-smoking ad or something like that somewhere. So Terrence McKenna is an interesting guy. Um, he's written a lot of books. His main focus throughout the years has been on ayahuasca and the DMT experience. He's also written a whole lot about time wave zero, which is a theory of his that is a little too convoluted to explain here on the radio. Um, but we'll link to some stuff about it. It's a pretty crazy theory. It's interesting, though. Yeah, Terrence McKenna also, I mean, he his whole thing is, uh, in Food of the Gods at least, is he talks about kind of an alternate perspective on human evolution and the origin of rituals and symbols and language and how they relate to psychedelics. And it's, it's very, very, very fascinating. I highly recommend everyone to read it. Um, he has a theory that, that badly when we were, you know, part of the missing link in our evolution, this is a theory of his that's not really based in anthropological evidence, but it's an interesting theory nonetheless. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of stages in hominids and early hominids where our brains were, our heads were increasing, but at a very, very slight rate. And then, of course, there's this jump um, to today where we, we still haven't found the missing link of how our brains got so large and um, how we became human. And his theory is that it was through the the discovery of psychedelics and we just expanded our consciousness and our civilization just took off. It started during the hunting and gathering phase when in tests, Ter- Terrence McKenna talks about very small doses of psilocybin actually helps hunting and gathering skills. It makes you more acute. It makes you more quick on your feet. It makes um, your, your visual acuity mm-hmm. gets higher on small doses of yeah. psilocybin. And then so he thinks that humans naturally just followed where mushrooms were because it helped them. Um, And so through the use of psilocybin, they started developing rituals and and language and and culture. And that's really where civilization took off. It was really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of I mean, it's interesting to ponder what role did psychedelic drugs can make someone's brain take them to a place where they see these beautiful, crazy, elaborate landscapes of architecture and things that would be too complicated for any human to build you know what 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 is the purpose of this information mm-hmm. i mean in an ev- to play an evolutionary role um maybe psychedelic drugs purposes and as far as plants that can help us in our evolution you know like medicinal plants that could help you remove bacteria from your body that we learned about, you know, as we were evolving psychedelic plants like this could have aided in some way to just expand our mind and get us to try new things like, yeah, you know, like building 
structures or using tools. Or communicating with each other in yeah, a way or that making we never sounds, thought to. Yeah. Making interesting sounds. Yeah. I mean It's it's amazing. I mean, this is what I love this is what I love about his book, is it just plants are here for a reason. Plants or you know, we have all of our medicine derives from the natural healing properties of plants. And ever since life has existed on this planet, it's synergistically connected with plants and animals. It's it's a symbiosis between between human beings and, and animals and the way that they use the plants in, the, in their environment. Yeah. And, and Humans are symbiotically connected to the plants around them. It's almost just like nature just gives us solutions all around us. It provides us with natural healing properties and medicinal herbs that can pretty much help us with every ailment that exists. It, it would just make sense to me that psychedelic plants are here to help us with another stage in our evolutionary process. Psychedelics are here to aid us through life and to help us realize the symbiosis that we have with nature and the relationship that we share with plants. And that's why I really truly feel like ancient cultures really respected nature so much. You know, Native American tribes take, take mescaline and go on the vision quests and they would worship nature. And we just have lost that. We've lost that so much in our culture. We just don't understand the relationship that we have with nature. And I really think that's why we abuse it so much. We don't understand that we're connected to it and it's connected to us and it speaks to us. Well, we're part of nature. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing that <laughs> when you, when you ingest a psychedelic, some of the experiences that I had on it kind of relate to the, is a human being even separate from the animal kingdom? A human being is an animal. It's just a different form, you know, a species of animal. Mm -hmm. And and when you kind of think of things that way, you, you can't separate yourself from nature. That's why you have to look at the symbiosis between plants and animals and, and humans like ayahuasca, a ceremonial drink that they use in the Amazon, that drug, it's kind of interesting how they figured out how to use it because DMT, the active ingredient in ayahuasca, is not orally active. You can't drink it on its own and get an effect. The, the people in these tribes somehow figured out to combine it with a plant of completely different origin that was like a vine that had a different that chemical needed, That was in a it. precursor in order to actually... Yeah, it's a it's a drug that activates DMT orally. You have to take it before the D you ingest the DMT. What an incredible example of symbiosis right there. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, if scientists from today tried to find two plants that, you know, weren't psychoactive on their own, but when combined created this this amazing experience, I mean, they wouldn't be able to do it. It's like this, you know, this knowledge that you have when you, you know, you're that connected to your environment. So... You take, let us assume, a third toke, long and slow. You vaporize, and you take it in and in and in, and there is a sound uh, like the crumpling of a plastic bread wrapper, or the crackling or the flame, and a tone, a tone, a There is this, and 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 there is this, and
arrests my attention is the fact that this space is inhabited. So we're going to get into DMT now and the most powerful of all hallucinogens, dimethyltryptamine. And when we say powerful, we don't mean that it's like the most potent because it's not the most potent by the actual weight of DMT. LSD and drugs like salvia divinorum are much more potent than DMT, but it's it's the most powerful subjective experience, um, psychedelic experience. Most people would describe it that way. DMT is the only psychedelic known to naturally occur in the human body, and it's produced in the pineal gland, the third eye. DMT is such an interesting chemical because it not only dissolves your ego and makes you have that transcendent experience that LSD can and other drugs like that can, but most people who have ingested a high dose of DMT like 50 milligrams or over, they experience a sensation that they're visiting powerful beings, mm-hmm. intelligent, powerful beings that are infinitely more intelligent than they are and that are like communicating knowledge to them. So it's this really strange experience that a lot of people have described as being abducted by aliens, mm-hmm. being visited by the reptile creatures. David Icke fans will like that. Yeah, and um, that's... and. And it's just some really interesting components when people have reported being on DMT. And this is cataloged in this DMT, the spirit mo- molecule. And we'll get into that in a second. But a lot of people, when they have alien abduction experiences or they have um, near-death experiences, they they co- their experiences coincide a lot with a DMT trip. And a lot of people don't know if maybe this is just um, DMT being released in their brain or what, you know, I mean, a lot of people when they're on DMT see a white light, they're comforted, or they can have that, that other aspect where they feel like they're with aliens and, um, you know, they could have some sort of bad experience where they come out of it thinking that they were actually abducted by aliens because it's so real. An interesting thing about DMT is that it's in every mammal on the planet. No one knows what, what its purpose is in our body and why is it why are we connected to all these other creatures that produce this same chemical dmt is not only in in all mammals brains um, but it's also in thousands of different plant species all over the world there isn't a place in the world where you cannot find dmt in a, in a, in a local plant species so it's ubiquitous it's everywhere mm-hmm. um no other psychedelic has that property or no other, pretty much no other psychoactive drug mm-hmm. that's commonly used is, is in that many plants all over the place, that diversified. So it's interesting that, you know, that through evolution of the planet, that DMT has spread all over the place. It's almost like. It's meant to. Yeah. It's kind of just like, trying to you tell know, it's kind of like, try me. Yeah. <laughs> it's And DMT is the only psychoactive chemical, not not the only one of the only psychoactive chemicals that your brain embraces and really loves it when you take it they don't reject it like if you take mushrooms or lsd your body's kind of processing what you're taking yeah the dmt is absorbed by your your bloodstream extremely quickly it passes through the blood brain barrier extremely fast it is ejected from your system extremely fast too within hours dmt is completely gone and in your bloodstream and it's a very fast trip as well it's like yes five to ten minutes but under the influence of dmt time becomes so subjective that it could feel like it's lasting forever Mm -hmm. 
we both tried DMT and it pretty much changed our perception. I mean, it it was mm-hmm. a very strong influential experience kind of on our outlook. Why don't you go first? Tell well, us a little I tried about DMT when you gave it to me when I was like 17. Um, <laughs> I had never even done psychedelics before that. So that was completely going in there without any I feel a little bit irresponsible no, for that, but Abby, Abby it was, claims it was okay. Well, this is the you, best thing that's, that you've ever done for me. I went over to your house with my friends, Tiffany and Erica, and I just remember you put headphones on me and you just said, smoke this. And it was just a giant bong hit and I had no idea what it was. And I just remember, I don't believe that part of the story. I, I, I feel like I told you what it was, but keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> I might've, I might've uh, had a false memory about that. Um, but I took the bong hit and I just held it in for as long as I could. And then I just melted and I was an infinite kaleidoscope for <laughs> infinity. That's it. I mean, I, it was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. What emotional or mental effects do you remember taking from that experience? Uh, after I came out of it and I realized where I was again, I, I was just like overwhelmed by emotion. And I remember just going out and just laying down in the street and just like thinking what the hell is going on. And I remember my friends wanted to go to a party after that. And I was just like, I can't process what's happening around me. It was just like, it was really, really profound and beautiful. I mean, I was like crying because it was so amazing and beautiful to me. Was this the first time that you had really had like a psychedelic experience like this? I'd never taken mushrooms, never taken LSD. I'd just taken DMT. And and honestly, I really think that's what prompted me to start painting the way that I do because I really I don't I don't consciously think about it when I when I make art, but it definitely has a great influence. I mean, if you look at DMT imagery and if you just think about what it's like to be on DMT or to be seeing what you see, that definitely comes through in my art. And I really feel like that put me on on the path to try to produce artistically some some sort of vision that was awakened in me from from the experience like your representation of a dmt trip yeah like, a lot of them i've just been like wow this looks exactly like dmt i'm uh, specifically i think mousetrap and then the one what's the squid one called is that oh yeah yeah, yeah. pink squid versus pink, white fire pink squid versus white fire looks very very much like a dmt yeah. trip to me it's great. I mean, but, you know, even having that experience, I didn't take the death dose. I mean, I didn't get to where you went when you took it. I definitely completely had no idea who I was for a little bit. So I guess I did get sort of an ego loss, well, but I didn't go far. <laughs> and I remember after doing DMT, I remember taking mushrooms for the first time when I was a freshman in college. And I was just like, what the hell? This is mushrooms. This is like so like I was like so expecting it to be like so crazy or just I don't know. I just hyped it up so much in my mind that it was going to be this kind of a similar psychedelic trip, but it ended up being very mild. And for the next eight years, I kept trying to find DMT again. And when I finally did, my ego pretty much prevented me from letting go. I remember I took a, I took a bunch of it with a couple of friends one night and I was not able to let go. My ego held on. And I think it's because I hyped it up in my mind so much since having that experience and I think it's also just because I grew into more of who I was and latched on more to my identity you know seven years after doing it when I before I had taken psychedelics when I was 17 finally doing it again I definitely felt like I had more of an identity struggle well that's well I'm glad you you enjoyed yourself (laughs) and uh um you were an atheist before you took it well 
I, I wouldn't call myself not an atheist now. Now I'm kind of more of like, a, I don't know what the hell's out there yeah, is. that's different. Which is not necessarily an agnostic, but I'm very open that to is, different possibilities. What is agnosticism? I thought that was just that you don't know. Agnosticism to me is kind of a illogical concept because it means that you don't believe in God unless you're given proof. Oh, really? You, you don't just... believe in God until you've been shown proof of God's existence. But to me... A Christian, we can be considered an agnostic if they didn't believe in Christianity before they were given to what's to them proof of Jesus's mm. spiritual, you know, existence. Right. So I, I, I think that it's it doesn't make sense because it's like proof is subjective. You know, if someone showed oh, a skeptic agnostic a floating ball of light and the floating ball of light started to beam to them telepathically, they are, you know, they're God. Just because someone says they're God doesn't mean they necessarily <laughs> are, you know. Um, that's my thought on agnosticism. But my my little experience with DMT, I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis of it. I met this guy at a psychedelics convention called Mind States that he was staying at my place for a couple nights. And then when I met him, um, he's like, hey, he's like, when we go back to your place, you want to try DMT? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I would like nothing more than to try DMT. And I was super gung-ho about it. I wasn't afraid at all. I figured I, ha I had all this psychedelic machismo. I thought yeah. I was like a psychonaut. So when I did DMT, I wasn't expecting it to really blow me away. Um, even though I had read crazy things about it before. But when I smoked it, I remember I did kind of like how I set you up. I had mm -hmm. headphones on playing some Tetsunoi ambient music. I had a blindfold, um, um, what's actually called a mindfold. Alex Gray designed this. It's a blindfold where you can open your eyes inside and see in uh, pitch black. It's my favorite thing to be equipped with during a psychedelic trip. <laughs> when I was when I was putting all this gear on my face, the headphones and the blindfold, the guy was like, "Oh man," he's like, "You know what you're doing." He's like, "Oh, you're cool, man. I don't need to. I don't need to tell you anything." And I was like, "All right, man. Like we're kind of on the same page here. Like you're you're like me. Like you're you're a hardcore. You know, you can take. You, you do a lot of psychedelics too." And that was kind of like my last like bit of machismo that I had before I went under the hammer. He told me to take three hits. Two of them just breathe like normal breaths. So I took the first two hits and then breathed in and just blew it out right away. And the, when he put the lighter down for the third time. I looked at the lighter and the flame from the lighter started to turn and almost started to take on the look of like a stained glass window drawing of a lighter mm -hmm. or a flame. So I closed my eyes and laid back. And as I laid back where the kaleidoscope started to engulf me, I thought, well, this isn't so crazy. You know, if it's like this the whole time, it'll be really fun. And as I was thinking that, thinking it wasn't that crazy, the, the kaleidoscope imagery that I saw turned into like a three-dimensional vortex, like a, like a tube. And I started to be shot and propelled through this tube mm -hmm. to like an infinite, like, like a, um, the split horizon on a black hole. And like all at that point, when I reached that level, as I was going towards this, this, um, did you still have a sense of who you were at this point? I did. And as I was going towards this point, I had the sense that if I go any further, You're gonna die. I'm going to die. And I, my life flashed before my eyes. I thought about, you know, mom and dad, I thought mm -hmm. about everything from my life, thought about you know, the girlfriend I had at the time, it was, it was a really scary couple of seconds. Mm -hmm. And after that moment, what I remember most is just this blissful feeling of just complete unattachment to everything, just this pure free floating feeling. Mm -hmm. And, and so as I was experiencing this, the only way I could really describe it is I became the thing that bursts. I was in, I was this 
tiny little bursting organism in this giant network of connected together other bursting organisms. They were all bursting energy. And when I say other organisms, I mean every living creature. It felt like I was connected to this grid of energy that every other living creature was connected to. And all my point in life was doing was just bursting with energy. (laughs) And I was just seeing all these other creatures doing the same thing, the life cycle, where they're just bursting with energy. And in the midst of all this, I was being comforted. Um, I felt like I was being comforted by my own brain. Like it was like kind of like my inner voice saying, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Relax. It's, It's okay. You've been here before. Mm-hmm. You know this place. This is familiar. But I I slowly realized that it was like these giant fractal beings, these towering omnipotent beings that were barely visible. I mean, they just looked, they, they didn't really look like them. anything. I could feel the presence of them mm-hmm. telling me that this is something that's, that this is the, 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 the universe as it exists behind the curtain mm-hmm. that, that I shouldn't be afraid to experience this feeling because this is the natural state of things and everybody bursts and is a <laughs> thing that bursts and you're a thing that bursts and that shouldn't make you feel bad and it's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. It was like the ultimate truth. Yeah. I mean, talk about was, truth serum. It, it was so <laughs> it was like... life changing. I mean, like, you know, for me, that was a spiritual experience. I didn't think that I was necessarily seeing God but I felt like I was reaching a part of the universe that was something that I'd never believed in before. Yeah. That I just, that, that I believe that, you know, that when you go and take psychedelics, you're, you're hallucinating things from your own imagination. But this felt like something completely not from my imagination. It was like Terrence McKenna describes in his books as a, the cheer. Like he describes these beings. He, he, when he talks about it, he describes these beings as self-dribbling basketballs that they speak in symbols to you and that they're these, and that when they speak to you, they're morphing into symbols mm-hmm. and that there's a, there's a cheer when you come over to the other side and meet these beings that they're so excited to see you that the only way you can describe it is that they're cheering for your arrival. Wow. And that they're, and that they're, it's like almost like imagine like some sort of weird scene from like a cheesy men in black movie where like some alien you know you like that scene where like they open the locker and like, there's yeah. like an alien yeah civilization alien they're like all excited yeah. to see him. it's like that i mean it's like it's that fucking mind-blowing i mean dmt is so fascinating and so incredible it's so mysterious fuck, we can say fuck yeah it's dmt is so fascinating because it's so mysterious and because we don't really know what it is. I mean, is DMT our consciousness? Is it our soul? Is it the underlying energy that exists between all living things on this planet? And is that when you strip away everything else that we've constructed for ourselves, is that the ultimate truth? Is that what we're seeing? Is it just an explosion of pure energy that we are a part of? And it's just the realization that everything is a part of us and that it's okay. I mean, it's just amazing. It's okay. It's just amazing. And that's to me, I mean, I'm I'm not, I don't like to religiously preach because I'm not religious, but I will say that if I was an ayahuasca shaman um, and I wanted to share my spiritual experience with another person that was a non-believer, I could do that in the form of a DMT experience for them. I could give someone who is a non-believer ayahuasca and tell them, this is my God this right. is what I experienced. And that person would be able to have a direct experience in that world of that person. You know, they would come into it with their own cultural trappings and their own cultural lens, but they would at least be able to come out of it and say, I understand 
your beliefs now. But you can't do that with other religions. A Catholic priest can't explain to an unbeliever and get them to understand why they have a direct link with God. They won't be able to tell them this is why. They'll I have just a say have God. faith. They, they, yeah, they'll have to end at the have faith line of uh, argument. You know, that's the interesting thing is that um, is that that's what psychedelic drugs give you. Even Eastern religions can't offer you the same kind of um, you know mind opening experience without years and years of training. Mm-hmm. You know, meditation training. There are definitely other, and I want to want to make sure we we make this clear in this broadcast so people don't think that all we're doing is saying that the only way to experience these states is through psychedelic drugs. That's totally not true. I mean, there are other ways to, to reach transcendental spiritual states using your own brain. There are many, many other ways. Um, I just don't think it's a mistake that DMT is so prevalent on this planet and that it offers this experience for us. No, I mean, if you believe that nature has a plan intended for plants and their, their function in that environment and to be, have a symbiotic relationship with the living creatures around it, then you would have to assume that DMT and things like psilocybin, because they're so ubiquitous around the planet that they do serve some sort Mm -hmm. of evolutionary purpose. Um, alcohol clearly serves some sort of evolutionary purpose. Is it to, is it to, help perpetuate the, you know, the mindless animalistic mating rituals that we have. I mean, who knows, but I mean, it's, it's hard to see, you know, you have to be omnipotent basically to, to be able to see the course of evolution and know why these things evolve. But I mean, I don't think it's too far off to say that. that yeah. At all. And like you were saying before, shamans can offer this direct experience with their culture. And it seems like every culture that has evolved on this planet has had that conduit to reach that state of enlightenment and who is our shaman of of the culture today our shamans of today are our priests politicians and the media (laughs) you know they tell us what to think and believe and and they're our conduit to the to the world of 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 information and knowledge yeah and that's kind of sad it is really sad what is our soul and what is our consciousness if our body regenerates every cell every seven years, then what makes us, us? Nothing. It's our memory of us. It's, it's a, it's a projection. Holographic universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a really good resource for all the drugs that we've been talking about and just um, more about psychoactive chemicals is the Irwood. Irwood.org. org. Um, they have a really good research catalog on different psychoactive substances so you guys should definitely check that out and also check out mediaroots.org for more information and our soundcloud link to follow everything that we've been talking about through this broadcast i think we could we should segue now into a little bit about lucid dreaming a lot of people think that dmt is also holds the key to dreaming because we just don't understand dreams. I mean, we spend a third of our life dreaming. We don't analyze them enough. We just kind of disregard them as meaningless. But what does it say about our consciousness? And what does DMT have to do with it? We just have such little understanding of how the human mind really works. Yeah, we still are just scratching the surface of the way that um, their brain works. I mean, I, I know people have been saying that for years, but it's true. I mean, you know, you can reach similar states of consciousness to the state brought on by DMT through other means of mind expansion and and there's and one of those means is lucid dreaming um that i'm personally a big fan of i used to be a big practicer of lucid dreaming it's basically the concept that when you're having a dream you become conscious in the dream and realize that you are dreaming 
Now, this in and of itself doesn't sound like it might be a transcendental um, experience. But, but you can master it. But you can master it and you can use it as a conduit for other extreme possibilities. But they can reach these other levels where if you actually... Um, like, like, say if like you have a lucid dream where you just decide to fly into the sky yeah. and, and fly it to another universe or something like mm-hmm. that, you can experience like very crazy psychedelic worlds. Absolutely. Um, I remember I, I had a lucid dream once where I, um, I was watching television and I was on the set of friends with Joey and, uh, Courtney Cox and I flew through the television screen that they were watching and I came out on the other side and I was inside of an, a movie theater filled with an audience that was drawn like the Pocahontas Disney style nice. animation. And, and somebody in the dream came up to me and told, explained to me that I was dying and that I wasn't really lucid dreaming and that I had experienced death. Um, and that I was just in, I was in some sort of hell and they're explaining to me how to get out of this. <laughs> hell, hell is full of Pocahontas drawn, yeah. drawings. It was really creepy. But after waking up from this experience, I realized, wow, you know, lucid dreams can reach a state where they could get to these places where you really can have like near death experiences and like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, one of the very few, I mean, I haven't really had many lucid dreams. Um, but the few that I have had were really really like scary because I would realize that I was lucid dreaming and then I I would immediately like <laughs> try to fly and I'd fly so high in the, in the sky <laughs> that I would just become really, really terrified because I just realized that I didn't know where I could go with it. I mean, you realize like how far you could take it. Yeah. You realize you just how yourself. powerful the amazing thing about lucid dreaming is when you, when you have, when you have a lucid dream and you learn to be able to relax your mind once you become conscious and just kind of look around in your environment, you have this adrenaline rush like experience that you feel mm-hmm. where it's exhilarating to know that your brain is powerful enough to create an environment that is completely convincing and realistic, not only visually, but tactile, you know, you can touch things. Oh, yeah. I mean, just being able to like, if you, if you realize you're dreaming and you're just in a random room, look through the things in that room and just examine yeah. them, like Do a reality pick up check. a book and start reading mm-hmm. the book and just see what it says. I mean, that's an interesting way to learn something about yourself because these things are coming from your own brain. Talk to a dream character about the, you know, the about who they of, are yeah, that or, would be really or about who you are. Yeah. Ask them about the meaning of life. Yeah. yeah. Ask a dead relative <laughs> in a dream about the meaning of life and, and ask them what it's like to be dead. I mean, those are just interesting, you know, things that you can't do on psychedelics. Yeah. You know, you can't have that much control on a psychedelic. A psychedelic makes you lose control. Mm-hmm. A lucid dream gives you the ultimate control to such a point where you can open up your mind in ways that you can get inside to yourself that you can't get in. For hours. Way. Yeah. Which is amazing. And just imagine how different society would be if we all learned and how to exercise our dream memory muscle and we use that to lucid dream. Like we, we were able to remember our dreams and discuss them. Dreams would people are, even go to work anymore? <laughs> I mean, I think people, I think society would be better if we, if we, if we all learn how to lucid dream, because then we could get out aggressions on yeah. things. They actually did a study where they taught prisoners in prison to lucid dream who were sex offenders. Mm. So that if they had these weird, wild rape fantasies or whatever, they can, they would perform them in a lucid dream. And, you know, that's fine as long as you're not hurting real people. And then one one person that, that we should mention in talking about lucid dreaming who pioneered most of this research is Stephen LeBurge, um, a professor from Stanford. In the late 70s, he discovered, 
he was the first scientist to have a person under the state of dreaming communicate to the outside world. He taught a scientist to do a left, right, left eye movement combination when he became lucid in the dream to signal to the person in the waking (gasps) state in the lab, the scientist watching that he was lucid dreaming. That's amazing. And they, that was like a breakthrough because up until then it was just kind of more of a novelty. It's like, oh my God, I, you know, I'm dreaming. You know, yeah, like you, yeah. you realize that it had never really been taken seriously. But Stephen LeBurge, he, he pioneered a whole movement around it. And he also was That's the inventor of something called the Nova Dreamer. The fir- first and foremost, start writing down your dreams. Just every morning when you wake up, if you have a, a particularly interesting dream, just jot it down, jot down notes. And the more you do this, the more that you'll be able to control them later. If you become more familiar with settings and scenes, you'll recognize more that you're in a dream and be able to just develop this technique. I haven't really been able to do it. It's really hard. One of the main techniques that people, if they want to lose a dream, should know is reality checks, which normal everyday events get absorbed into dreams. Um, so if you start doing what are called reality checks in your normal everyday life, you'll start actually doing reality checks in dreams. And a reality check, one of them could include um, turning a light switch on and off is, an, is one that, that a lot of people like to do. Because in dreams, most things like light switches won't work. A lot of mechanical things won't work. So, you know, flip a light switch on and off a couple times a day. And while you're doing it, think, am I dreaming? But don't, don't get OCD. Yeah. <laughs> don't get obsessive compulsive about it and, and start an- thinking that people are going to die if you don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Another one that I really like to do that's actually worked for me numerous times, that the most successful reality check that I've done is that I call it the text check, is when in the dream, you'll, when you do it, um, or sorry, in reality, you want to look at some text a couple of times a day, maybe three or four times a day, look at some text in your surrounding. It could be some writing on the wall, on the cover of a book, you know, on the front of, you know, like the, the name brand of the television you're looking at, read it and look away and look back at it a couple times. And if the text doesn't change, then you know that you're not dreaming. But if you do the same test in the dream, you look at some text, look away, look back, look away, look back. In the dream, most likely the text will actually morph and like change right before your eyes. The lucid dreaming thing just goes to show you that we have so much untapped capabilities when it comes to the human mind. We have so many complexities that we haven't even begun to explore, discover, and psychoactive substances and plants and things like lucid dreaming and isolation tanks can really help you explore and develop your your consciousness and expand your your mind absolutely i mean i i recommend highly you know if if people are hesitant to try psychedelics for for whatever reason that's that's totally you know your prerogative to to do um if you but i think i highly recommend trying an isolation tank experience or or trying lucid dreaming two completely natural completely healthy unharmful ways of of very powerful mind expansion And thank you so much, everyone. We're going to wrap it up today. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this segment. Tune in next week and go to MediaRoots.org for more information. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks so much for listening, you guys. And please go to RecordLabelRecords.org to check out some of the new releases I'm putting out. We're going to end with a little bit of Robbie's new compilation that he just released to end the broadcast. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.